From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. This time doing a mailbag episode. It's been a while since I've done one of these. I've had lots of questions come in uh, for a while, and uh, I've just not had a chance to answer all of them. I've tried to answer some of them uh, sort of in the flow of different episodes so far. But it's time to get to it. As always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing you the best of internet marketing and website development for an affordable price. And by the Unconquered Podcast Shop. Take a look over there, get some uh, stickers. Some folks have been ordering those, uh, some satisfied customers. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. The Mike Norvell Climb stickers, the the Rise sticker, lots of stuff there. In any case, um, yeah, let's go ahead and get to it. So, bunch of questions. Like I said, uh, the first one it has to do with the defense. And actually, this is several questions sort of put together uh, by different people that have asked these. So, I've, I've kind of put a bunch of questions about Florida State's defense all in one section. So, I'll just sort of read out a couple different versions of the several that came in about this and then uh, give a, a response to all of them. Uh, the first is, uh, why is the defense so vanilla? I do not see any disguised coverages, zone blitzing, or exotic blitzes. Nothing close like that. Another person, uh, the NC State coach said that F- that the FSU defense does not do too much, just lines up and plays. Why? And then another question, why doesn't FSU play zone defense? Okay, so there's a lot going on here. Um, first and foremost, Uh, I think the most important thing to note is that Florida State plays mostly zone defense. So you're going to hear a lot of people talk about how Florida State plays man defense and then just doesn't play zone very well. Not really true. Um, Florida State's base defense is a cover seven. So most of the time when you watch them out there, Florida State's going to be in a cover seven look. And they start at the line of scrimmage. Most plays... It looks like a cover seven, even if that's not what they're what they're going to be playing after the snap. Their default coverage is is that cover seven. Now, cover seven is kind of complicated. Cover seven, and I need to do a video on this. I'm behind on some videos. Sorry about that. It's just the reality of things right now. The basics of cover seven are pretty simple. It is a matchup zone coverage. So it's a it's a pattern matching zone coverage or you could call it a man-match zone coverage. So this is the default coverage, by the way, for Georgia, for Alabama. A lot of teams these days have defaulted to to using a cover seven as their base. Uh, It's it's probably the dominant coverage in college football for most teams at this point, though you do see some man-free, or you see teams that prefer to do more middle-of-the-field closed where you have a single high look. Uh, and they'll play less of it than others. But for teams that are willing to go more split safety and still want to be able to stop stop the run and have some extra bodies for RPO-type stuff, it's you're going to see a lot of, of cover seven. And basically what cover seven is, is it's a quarters coverage. So you've got four across, your two corners and your two safeties that are each going to be responsible for a deep zone, depending on who goes deep. Now, the thing that makes this different from just standard quarters or cover four is in quarters or cover four, those guys are just, they're they're playing over the top in zone coverage. And basically they're going to take that deep zone pretty close to no matter what. Now there's a little bit different, a little bit of a, a fuzziness there because in quarters, the safeties if there's a run fake or if there's a run action or if there's no evidence of a number two receiver going deep, so there's no vertical release from number two, then those safeties will usually just stay put. They'll, they'll sort of keep their heels at, at, at 10 yards until they're sure that there's a deep threat in, that's coming to their zone. So there's a little bit of a built-in kind of match in even standard quarters, although you can just have it where they play it like a cover three, you know, your country cover three where uh, you're going to have typically in a country cover three, your corners are going to bail out over the top. They're going to play deep thirds and your, your deep safety is just going to play deep no matter what you can play quarters that way. Very few teams do that aside from like a prevent situation now, but what cover seven does is it takes the quarters concept and then it pairs that with man principles so that essentially whoever, if if a a defense 
is facing, let's say, four wide receivers, and you got a two by two, good setup for a cover for a cover four type coverage or cover seven. The way this is going to work is that the safety and the corner on each side are going to read the releases of the of the offensive players, and they're going to play specific techniques, a, ma- a match or a mix. Uh, there's a number of different checks out of this. You can, you know, add a, a mod check or a uh, a bracket check. There, there's a lot of different things that you can do in cover seven, depending on what you're trying, what, what the opposing, opposing offense tends to run out of a given look, what their personnel is. It's a very, very flexible situation. So really the benefit of cover seven in a lot of respects is that it gives you a sort of a master key type defense that you can play in theory. You could play cover cover seven the entire game. And as long as your players know the proper checks to formation, know how to how to read routes and all of that. And the way that the pattern matching works is your corner, for example, is going to read the release of number one. If he releases vertical, then the corner has him, period. But if he releases, let's say you he's reading release the vertical release. So it, again, this can kind of get complicated. Let me let me take a step back. Number one vertical release, corner's going to take him as a rule. However, if there's, he's always reading number one's release through number one into number two. So he wants to see number two's release as well. If he sees an immediate outbreak from number two and number one releases vertical, there are certain checks, there are certain situations, certain uh, calls in cover seven in which he's going to release number one to the safety and he's going to jump number two on the outbreaking route. A lot of times that's not going to happen. You're just going to stick in, in what looks like a kind of man situation where the, the safety is going to take, take care of that guy in the flat. Sometimes that's the check. Most of the time, though, the way this is going to work is if you get an outside release from the outside guy, the corner is going to basically be, it's going to become man. Even though he's taking that in a zone situation, he's got the deep zone over that man, it becomes man at that point. If there's two vertical releases, then he definitely has the outside one. If the inside, if the outside guy releases inside, then he releases him. He lets him go. So it's not man. He's going to usually ride him for a second in, in the way Florida State does this. He's going to kind of get his hands on him and, and move him inside. And then he's looking for whoever's coming outside to replace him. So, and this is where Florida State got beat on a couple of, uh, of slant flat concepts uh, against... NC State and against Clemson, each of which was a freshman, Azaria Thomas, on the outside, not recognizing, not not handling his pattern match responsibility exactly right on this. The corner has to ride that that slant inside just long enough to pass it off to the inside player who's going to take that in, in zone. And now that becomes that guy's man. And then he's going to take the flat that's coming outside. Because generally, if the number one is going inside, that means the flat or that means somebody is coming outside from the inside. So you're waiting on him. So this is where it's a, it's really a zone, even though otherwise it's man. If there's quarterback movement, so the quarterback starts, you know, let's say you've got a play action or a boot and a sprint out and number one goes across the field. A lot of times in that case, the corner will follow across the field. So again, all of these things are happening and that's just one position. The corner has to be reading this and then, passing that off or staying with or covering in man coverage, depending on what is being done for the release of number one and then the release of number two to his side. And if there's three to his side, sometimes you still play a quarters look. Oftentimes that becomes a cover seven, but you might solo it on the other side so that it becomes man to the single receiver side, but you're in a quarters type concept to the front side, which is still a matchup zone still man match. So it's a hybrid defense. You, you're not really playing true man, but you're also not playing exact. You're not playing a spot drop or country zone, country drop zone either. Uh, and so Florida state does a lot of this. This is their default, their base defense. 
Now, the downside to running this kind of defense, to running a lot of cover seven, is cover seven is, is it can be hard to coach because there's a lot baked into it. It's one of those things where you have to commit to, co- to playing cover seven. You have to. And you have to build those principles in and really drill your team to get it right. So you get teams like like Pitt that run a quarters concept all game. They run 80, 85% of their game, maybe 90 plus. In some games, it's almost 100% of their coverages or some version of quarters. Usually some iteration of cover seven type thing. So teams will absolutely commit to this because the benefit of it is that you can run one coverage, get really, really, really good at it and be able to play fast and be flexible. And it's, it gives you a chance to, it's a, it's a flexible coverage that gives you a lot of ability to be aggressive while not giving up a lot of big plays. So, I mean, to beat, to beat that coverage, you're going to have to have dudes that can make big plays. I mean, that's the thing. So, uh, and it also gives you some run support because each of the safeties fits in, in the run game and in the RPO game, depending on what happens to their side, each of those safeties is playing at 10 yards and they have run fit responsibilities against the run, depending on what the action is. So if you get the number two releases upfield, the safety has to take him. But generally speaking, if there's a run or an RPO call, you're not going to have that at the same time that you had the run. And if you do, well, the safety takes it away and you can still let your turn your linebackers loose. So that allows you, again, it allows you a lot of flexibility. The difficulty is you have to rep it. You have to coach it. There's so many checks. There's so many things involved in it that it takes a while to get good at it. And you have to have some experience in the back end generally to be pretty good at it. So what Florida State has done this year is they've committed to playing more of that kind of defense of, of playing just cover seven as a base. And they played a lot of base defense this year. This is what, again, NC State's, uh, NC State's coach talked about this as the question mentioned. He said, Florida State's defense, you know, they line up and play. Well, you know, you're going to get cover seven a lot of the time against them. That's, that's his point. They're not trying to do too much to, to trick you because they don't want to put themselves in a bad spot and they're not in a position where they feel like with this group of defenders, they can get overly complicated and still be as sound. What they've valued is being sound on defense. They've determined that they've got some guys that can win one-on-one matchups up front and that if they try to do too much, then they might lose some matchups on the back end. So they've decided to, to be sound and rely on players winning their jobs. Now, interestingly, Fuller, that is not actually his MO. I mean, when he came to Florida State, his big MO was when the ball turns over, as he says it, when the ball snapped, he wants the he wants any movement or anything that the defense is doing to happen after the ball snaps. And he's big on changing the look uh, for the quarterback at that point. Now, if you play a ton of cover seven, the looks don't change that much. I mean, the quarterback's generally going to know what he's got. But Florida State does still, and, and he came in as a cover seven you know, base anyway. I mean, that's what they do. But he wants to do other things and on top of that. And the thing about what Florida State is doing now is that they are throwing in some variation. So it's going to look like, and this is where one of those things where I'm not exactly, I don't exactly agree with this idea that you know, I don't see any disguise coverages or zone blitzing or exotic blitzes or whatever. It's true that they're not zone blitzing a bunch. Uh, they are pulling in some specific blitzes and they, they've focused on carrying blitzes that they feel they can do well. And they've got, you know, probably five or six that they're that they're tossing in in any game that 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 are specific pre- pressure packages that they're bringing a lot. They actually bring the safety pretty often. Uh, which is something you can do when you're playing a lot of cover seven because they're playing at 10 yards. And if that guy times it well, he's got a chance. But they are using some disguise in terms of coverage. They do rotate to a single high more than you might think. It's hard to see on the TV copy, but there are times where they're rotating to the uh, to the single high type look. And so they're in those cases, they're running a robber type thing or a rat type coverage. Uh, they're running some rip Liz, although they're not doing a ton of rip Liz. Uh, and then sometimes you'll see them line up in a, in a cover two 
they've run some cover two and some cover two man under, which is, you know, the Randy Shannon coverage. Uh, That's what he ran as his base at Miami. And they've run some of that. They ran some of that, especially against LSU. They ran some of that against, uh, against Louisville. They they've done some of those things in terms of playing cover two to give those safeties, get those safeties playing over the top. They haven't done that much of that though. Uh, I will say when you when you hear people talk about Florida State doesn't play much zone or you know that sort of thing they're they're telling on themselves a little bit because really they're 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 actually playing a lot of zone it's just a zone that that looks like a man so uh and it turns into a man in against certain looks and that sort of thing like I said that's what they're doing in terms of why they're not doing more than that I think the main thing, again, to repeat, they're trying to keep things simple so that they can stay sound. And they've valued being sound defensively on these things more than anything else. Now, I would like to see them be more sound in certain respects. And there are certain things schematically that they have done when they varied from their cover seven type looks that I've not liked very much. I mean, some of the things that they've done in terms of spying and all of that, I've very much disliked. But they're what they're trying to do. I, I I generally agree with for the most part in terms of commit to, to playing sound defense. Don't give up anything easy. You've got some good athletes on defense and let those guys go out there and try to win for you. And basically it's been their conviction this season that if they just play sound defense and don't give up cheap, big plays, they're good enough on offense and they've got enough weaknesses on defense in certain spots that they can't that they don't feel like they can take a bunch of risks but they feel like their best shot to win the game is to play sound defense don't give up big plays and and go from there so uh another this was more of a comment that was sent in uh i know the secondary play especially the cornerback play has not been very good there are teams in the power five with less talent than fsu and uh, less athletic corners that do more with their defense we do not dictate to the uh, opponent's offense at all and I think the they just want some comments on this. I do think that aside from Renardo Green, who I think has had a pretty darn good year at, at corner, the cornerback play at Florida State this year has not been up to expectation. Uh, there have been some technique things that have frustrated me at times. I do think there have been some teams in the Power Five that have less talent than Florida State that have done more with their corners. Uh, actually, I think they're playing one this week. I think Syracuse's uh, corners have really played well this year, although their best ones uh, likely out for this week. But, um, but yeah, I think overall Florida state's back end has not played as well as they should. And, and in particular, the thing that's frustrated me the most is some of the poor technique or poor communication. When you, when you get to bunch sets, when you get into switch kind of concepts and things like that, these are the things that you run cover seven and that kind of thing to be able to handle well. And there've been times where these guys have just really not done a good job of sifting and letting those letting those releases sort out and and hitting their proper responsibilities and all that. There was a point this year, you know, going up into the Wake Forest game and a little beyond where essentially if you ran any sort of bunch or any sort of uh rub type routes or whatever, Florida State was just going to give up a play. And if you're going to be pretty basic in terms of running one coverage pretty frequently and then just iterating out of that and and showing enough variation out of that that they can't be sure that that's what you're in every time then you need to be good enough you need to be really reliable when they do that stuff and there have been some times where there's been some significant uh there's been some things that have been very frustrating for me to see and and uh, uh i'm not persuaded that they've that they've coached or taught all of that as well as they should have on the back end but you know this is this is something that I think they're conscious of and they're continuing to try to get better at. Okay, the next question. What's up with Sidney Williams? Why isn't he getting playing time? I thought he looked decent. Yeah, yeah, he has. He did look decent. He was pretty good last year. He's looked decent when he has played this year. But the fact is, decent isn't good enough to play a lot of reps at that position this year. Florida State's gotten better. And ultimately, Sidney, Sidney Williams is not as good as the guys in front of him. I mean, you look at that depth chart, Jamie Robinson, he's not playing in front of him when the game's on the line. Akeem Dent, he's not playing again ahead of him when the game's on the line. And Shaheem Brown has stepped forward to become the third safety out of that group. And he's been rock solid when he's been on the field. 
and he runs a lot better than Williams. He's just faster. So that gives them more speed, gives them a little bit more flexibility there. And that's, that's why, um, it's just an athletic thing. There's some other guys that, that, that are better athletes that can play that position and are, are good players. Okay. Next question. Do you think Span's outburst was maybe a little frustration on not getting the ball more? I know he's still raw and all, but he's got to be bothered by it, right? Actually, I don't think that was it at all. He he had a Miami player sort of pick a fight with him, and then he got called for the for the penalty. You know, he had a, a, an outburst there that then he got called and then was frustrated by the whole situation and then gets frustrated by the fact that he's called out on this. And, you know, you're, you get passionate in those situations. <laughs> and... For for what it's worth, I think Mike Norvell did an amazing job of handling that situation. That's exactly how you have to handle that situation. You have to ensure that your player understands that that kind of response is unacceptable. But you have to do so in a way that explains to that player, look, I'm on your side here. This is and and what I liked about Norvell's response there is you could see him say, look at me, look at me in the eyes, look at me in the eyes, breathe, calm down, look at me in the eyes. All right, look, this is not about them. This is about how we respond. And that's been Mike's message since he took over is no matter what the circumstances are, we control our response. We control who we're going to be in this situation. We control what's going to happen in controlling what we can control. We put ourselves in the best position we can. And the rest of it, that's a non that's a non issue. That's exactly how that needed to be uh, needed to be handled. And you can see, again, he's he's earning and deserves the trust of his players when he does that. Uh, And that's a really good sign for culture moving forward. And Span is a guy who, you know, next year is going to be taking that much that much of a more of a step forward. And, you know, that receiver room. This year already, they've had, you know, depending on the on the game, you don't know which guy is going to be the the breakout guy in that room. It's suddenly become a deep room. I mean, one game, it's Pittman. One, you know, one or two games, it's it's uh, Johnny Wilson against Miami. It was pokey. And then they just ran the ball. Uh, you know, they've they've had a lot of those things. Next year, you're going to see Span get more opportunities in those situ- situations. And then you're going to have Hakeem Williams, who in a lot of places would step on the field and be an instant starter, but he's going to be a rotational guy next year. I mean, is he good enough to come in and and play right away? Yes, but he's going to have to earn that time because he's, he's going, he's not going to be able to step right in and be head and shoulders better than those guys in front of him right away. More talented, 100% more athletic. Yes, but He's going to be another guy that's going to, it's going to take a little while just to get integrated. And yeah, I mean, it, that, that says a lot about where they are because, you know, last year, junior year, Hakeem Williams might've been the best receiver on the team last year, maybe second to, to pokey. He's going to arrive and he's going to have to fight to make sure that he's in the top five or six in the rotation. So yeah, that's and, and and again, Deuce Span is going to be one of those guys that's going to be in that rotation as well. With that athleticism, with that speed, it's going to come along. And the good thing is that he's bought in and he knows that as he continues to get better, he's going to get opportunities. One of the things I loved about what they did is after he calmed down and they put him back out there, they went right to him, gave him an opportunity to lower his shoulder and take out the Miami, the Miami DB. That's exactly what you do. We're going to do it between the whistles. You find him and you locate him and you run him over if you can. It's exactly what you do. Uh, so I, I really liked that uh, about how they handled that. All right, next question. Actually, before that, I want to thank my sponsors, uh, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. Look, interest rates are going up, but if you want to get the best deal on your house, if you want to make sure you sell your house for the most, give Louis a call. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered Podcast. Same in the Durham Chapel Hill area, uh, Carborough area of North Carolina. If you're in that area, Give Shenandoah Newsma a call, shenrealestate.com. Let her know you heard about her from the Unconquered Podcast. Nobody's going to outwork either one of those in their area. All right, let's go to the next one. Uh, okay, in, in 2013, Auburn had a steamroller fullback, Jay Prosh, who was 5'11", 260. He was such a force in that offense. If 
Norvell is a product of the Malzahn School of Offense. Do you think he's looking for a great blocking fullback or H-back? I guess that huge tight end we had last year was kind of that. So yeah, Jordan Wilson was brought in to be a little bit of that. And yeah, there is... So Norvell's offense... Norvell, first of all, he is a fork off of the Malzahn tree, but he is not running exactly Malzahn's offense. I mean, the terminology is the same. The base, you know, base level stuff is very much similar, but he's got his own iterations of this and he does not use the fullback as much as say Auburn did in 2013. You know, you'll see DJ Lundy in there occasionally for short yardage stuff, but he's, that's not really what he does. What he does like to have is a, big like 260 265 type guy who's a little taller who can be a bit of a threat in the passing game as well and also can line up as an inline tight end so Marquiston Douglas is that for Florida State now so Biscuit is exactly that now he's the he's the guy that that has that role and he wants to have one of those guys and then one more pass catching type tight end that he can he can kind of put on the field at the same time. So if you want to think about uh, a pro example of this, you go back to when new England had both Aaron Hernandez and Gronk, and they would put both of those guys on the field and flex them out and do all sorts of different things and use them differently in the running game. That's what Mike would like to ultimately do. He'd like to have that kind of, you know, athletic non-murderer Aaron Hernandez type Aaron Hernandez on the field type, uh, who's able to do a lot of those things in terms of flexibility. He can flex out and be a wide receiver. He can play, he can line up in a fullback type role. He can line up in an, in an H back as a sniffer. He can line up in the wing. He can do all of that stuff and be a threat in the passing game because he can run. And then also have your big guy who can line up in line, who can be a bit of a vertical threat in the passing game just because of size uh, and who can also line up in the backfield as a big lead blocker or in, in the wing position or in the sniffer position for split zone type stuff. He wants both of those types of bodies on his roster, which is one of the reasons why they've recruited so many tight ends. Uh, not all of them have been hits, but they want, they want enough tight ends or tight end types, H back types that they can do that stuff with them. Uh, given the current roster, you've got basically Biscuit and Brian Courtney are the future there. As far as, as far as it looks like Darrell powers is, is going to be interesting to see what happens with him because he's a little more bigger body as well, but you can kind of use for the, for next year, Courtney as a red shirt freshman, Marquiston Douglas as a sophomore, these are guys that ideally they become that kind of pair that you can put on the field at the same time. Norvell wants guys that can do more than one thing. He likes to be really flexible on offense to put stress on the defense, to have them match up personnel wise, and then wind up having the wrong matchup for formation, even though they've got matchup for personnel. So this is where a Lawrence Toafili type is, is good for his offense because Toafili is really a slot receiver in a lot of ways but he also runs hard as a running back. So you can line him up in the backfield. And if they want to match up to him as a running back, all of a sudden you can do things with him as a, essentially a slot receiver that give them problems if they've treated him as a running back. But if they treat him as a, as a slot receiver, now you can put him in the backfield and you can do two back type stuff and you can cause them problems in the running game. Same thing with what he does with H backs okay, you're going to line up to my two H-back situation as though I'm in two tights. Well, now this H-back's a receiver and you're going to have a hard time with that. Uh, he's He wants receivers who can line up in the backfield. He wants backs who can line up as receivers. A lot of those different things. It's all about finding matchups and finding ways to get his players in position where they have mismatches that he can take advantage of. I mean, this is how he markets his offense for uh, for recruits, it's accurate. He's not blowing smoke when he says it's an offense built for playmakers because that's exactly what he's trying to do in terms of getting, creating matchups by using the same personnel in different ways to get exactly the matchup that he wants that's going to give that guy a chance to win the one-on-one -on -one against that guy who cannot hang with him in that role. 
So that puts a lot of pressure on defenses. And it's one of the reasons why when Florida State hired Norvell, I was excited about the hires. I'd talked to other defensive coordinators and I'd looked at Mike's offense some and was convinced that it's a good offense that's flexible that can do it's one of one of my favorite offenses in the country because it does all of those things and it's so flexible to be able to do those things and 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 take advantage of mismatches and 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 uh good matchups in all sorts of ways and and uh if you have some of those flexible guys that you can get at Florida State it just makes you that much harder to uh to handle so so yeah that's uh that's that's kind of what he's looking for so i think Best case scenario is Biscuit continues to get better, continues to to uh, develop as a blocker and as a receiver, and then Brian Courtney or one of the younger one of the other young tight ends beca- uh, steps up and uh, becomes that much more of a replacement for uh, Cam McDonald moving forward. Although again, McDonald, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him moving forward. So, uh, so yeah, very interesting stuff there. All right, next question from uh, uh, this one is. Uh, are analytics playing a part in Norvell's red zone play calling? And so this was actually sent in right before the Miami game uh, when Florida State had not gone six for six in the red zone against Miami's uh, soft defense. Uh, no, actually, it's not analytics that are playing a part in Norvell's red zone play calling. It's more the problem that they can't just line up and, and bludgeon somebody and blow them off the ball. So he's had to be creative in finding good matchups and ways to uh, to take advantage of numbers and, and again, trying to find situations where this guy is at an advantage against this guy. And that's how we're, we're going to try to take advantage of that little thing on in the red zone. You can run the football between the twenties very differently than you can run the football in the red zone. The numbers change once you get down, especially inside the 10, because the safeties no longer have to cover anything deep. And so much of Florida state's offense this year is predicated on teams being terrified of getting beat deep. And this is why in the off season, I was so bullish on this offense coming in because as I said last year, they're going to have to smoke and mirrors to score points in this offense last year because they don't have anybody that scares you out wide. But with what I saw coming in, in terms of the transfers, it was like, look, if Johnny Wilson is what I think he is, he completely radically changes the Florida state offense. And he has, because now you have to cover him. You have to cover him deep. And not just him. As soon as he opens that up, now you have to worry about Pokey or you have to worry about whoever the other side is, whether it's Deuce Span or, you know, uh, McLean or any, any of those guys. Suddenly those guys become threats downfield. When you're able to make those throws, that, that forces those safeties or someone to stay out of the box a little bit. And then you can RPO it. You can get some numbers back with the threat of the quarterback run game. And it's... Norvell's offense just does a phenomenal job of taking advantage of those angles and the numbers that you get there. As soon as you get down inside the 10, somebody's got to beat somebody because those safeties now all of a sudden, instead of a six man box, you're an eight man box and you're blocking. Let's say you got seven blockers. You're you're seven blockers for eight, eight guys. And those guys at some point down in the, down in the red zone. And this is something I, you know, I used to hear Jimbo say all the time down in the red zone. You got to have, you got to have somebody beat somebody. You got to have somebody that just wins. And Florida State's not in a position where they're just dominant enough up front or really at running back in terms of the, the, the kind of power back that you have to have for that. I mean, Benson breaks a lot of tackles, but he's not a lower the shoulder and, you know, burst through the hole back as much yet. He's, he's growing back, growing closer into that now. But you think about last year, they did a lot of wildcat type stuff and things like that with Corbin, who is a really good short yardage runner. And they used that to gain, regain some numbers. And they were very good inside the red zone and inside in, in short yardage this year. They've, they've really missed that. And so they've had to try to compensate for that. They've gone, they went wildcat and then, you know, Toa Feely fumbled it last week. Uh, it was a bad snap left too early. You end up with a fumble. It's the same stuff that they had, so much success on running it with Corbin last year. So what they've done is they've had to be creative to score in those situations quite a bit. Now, as you get better up front, as you get more confident in the backs that you have to be able to, to make those plays, you don't have to do as much because you can, you feel like I can line up and just pound it in against this team. 
but it's hard to do in, in today's game. Defenses are pretty good. All right, next question. In the Georgia Tech game, it felt like we were in 21 personnel more than before. Uh, he ran this at Memphis, I think. Do you ultimately think that's where he wants to base from? Well, actually, in a lot of ways, this goes back to the other question that I just answered. And that is, Norvell wants to be very flexible with his personnel. So he likes a lot of 21 or 12 personnel. Uh, and he likes those to kind of be fuzzy. So his 12 personnel is going to be, and actually I should take a step back talking about 21 personnel. Uh, 21 personnel is going to be two running backs, one tight end, 12 personnel is one running back, two tight ends. Norvell likes to have a lot of 12 personnel where one of the two backs is a true running back and the other is more of a hybrid. The other is more of a, a flex where he's a, uh, a slot receiver who also has receiving or who also has running back skills. And so if you think about this on the current roster, you see two, two different listings in terms of uh, on the depth chart, you have running back position and then you have the tailback position. And those are different positions for what Norvell's doing. The tailback position is where Toa Feely, Rodney Hill, Ja'Kai Douglas was there, uh, still is there to some degree. That tailback position is that flex position. It's it's in the uh, Malzahn system. It's the three the three back, which is also the designation for the slot position in Norvell in, in the uh, Norvell Malzahn numbering. So the tailback is a hybrid player who can line up in the slot, line up out wide, or be a running back. And then he also wants to have like a true running back, like a legit, like this guy is a, he's, he's just a, he's a running back. So you got kind of your all purpose back slash slot, and then your true running back. And you put those on the field. And if they want to, again, if they want to match up as though you're playing two backs, now you do do more stuff as though that second back is really a receiver. If they want to match up to him more as a receiver, now he's a back. And you're always left holding the chalk in terms of personnel if you do that. So um, now best case scenario for someone like Norvell is if you have two backs, if your true running back is also a good enough receiver that he can be that dude as a receiver. Now you now you can do all sorts of flexible stuff, but he wants to be flexible that way. And he wants to be able to put he wants to be able to go 22 personnel, two tights, two running backs and then line up in, in five wide. He wants to be able to do that because that puts stress on a defense because defenses sub based on personnel. Well, what happens if they sub based on personnel? They see 22 and then all of a sudden they've got a linebacker covering a, you know, wide receiver fast, a, 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 uh, a tight end fa as fast as a wide receiver lined up on the far outside as, as the number one outside wide receiver. That's hard on a defense, right? This is where a guy like Johnny Wilson is exactly the, the right kind of fit for what Norvell likes to do or a Hakeem Williams is, is a great example of what he's looking for because you get that kind of big body and you can line him up and use him as a almost tight end in, in certain run contexts. You can with a Hakeem Williams, you can line him up in the backfield. If you want, you can use him in the screen game. And then of course he can go out and be a big play threat on the outside. So those are the sorts of things that he's looking for. He wants to be flexible. So yeah, I mean, a lot of 12 personnel for the future, but 12 personnel with a slot type receiver who is a, who's also a running back. That's, that's really what, what he wants. All right. Um, next question. Is it that concerning for the future that Miami was gashing us when the second team defensive line was in there? Do you expect us to get six to eight transfers for the 2023 year? So that's two questions. And the second one kind of dovetails into the next question I have. I'll put that, uh, those together in a moment, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't think it's that concerning for the future uh, because, it, frankly, it's what I kind of expected. Florida State struggled against the run when their twos have been on the field for, for three years now, especially when Lovett and Cooper have not been on the field together as defensive tackles. They struggled. Best example of this that you can go look at is go look at the Clemson game at Clemson from last year. 
When Lovett and Cooper were on the field, Clemson could not run the football. But go back and take a look at the drives where Clemson had their big runs. And in every drive, you had the backup defensive tackles on the field. It was almost always Jarrett Jackson and, and Malcolm Ray. I mean, that's that's just what you had. And, you know, that was young guys, guys that are not as consistent and not also as talented as as Cooper and Lovett. So they've just not been as good at those spots. And yeah, the twos are just not as good as the ones right now. That's just reality. Now, the good thing is that looking forward, the current twos are not exactly, are not necessarily the guys who are going to be on the field at, say, the defensive tackle spots next year. So you're going to see next year, the, the number three defensive tackle on this team, if he was eligible right now, would be AOT Fase. If Tifase was actually eligible to play right now, he'd be the number three defensive tackle on this team. He'd be getting the third most reps. I'm confident of that. So you're looking at that guy being in the rotation next year. Ray being a little bit better. Jackson hopefully being a little bit better as well. I, I, I think Daniel Lyons has looked very good when he's gotten his opportunities and has a chance with a good offseason to really take a step forward. Joshua Farmer is going to take some steps forward. So... They're gonna they're they're gonna be better there now. If they could get a you know love it level transfer, then you, you take him, no question. But I don't think you're gonna see a lot of transfers in this year's class. I don't think you're gonna see you know six to eight transfers. I think you're gonna see more like four, maybe five, if that. They're not just trying to fill gaps now with transfers for depth purposes. The only transfers I think they're going to take this time out are going to be guys that they feel can plug and play in the Jared verse Tatum Bethune type uh, or, you know, Johnny Wilson uh, type of instant plug and play instant starter type player. They're only going to take those kinds of guys because partly because they don't have the numbers. They're not losing a ton of guys this year. So, you know, if, if they don't, have a couple, a, a little bit of attrition after the season. They're they're already basically with the current recruiting class. They're already at the limit or pretty close to. Now there's going to be some attrition, so you're going to see some of that. But you know, I don't think they're going to go chasing a bunch of transfers in this in this off season. They're going to be selective and they're going to go after guys that they believe can help them right away. You know, if they can find an offensive lineman who's an instant plug and play, they'll do it. But they're not going to just go and sign offensive line depth like they did this year. I don't think that's going to happen. And, you know, same thing. They're not going and looking for three receivers. So, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see as much of a focus in the transfer portal this year. It's going to be much more selective and the guys that they bring in, I think, are going to be closer to sure things. And they've got a lot to sell there after the, after their success in the transfer portal the last few years. They can basically say, look, we can, we've got proof of concept. If you're an edge guy and you want to come in and be elite, Right up front, we'll get you in the first round. Uh, they can they can show that now, and so if they can find an edge that can replace Jared Verse or come close to it, that'll be a guy you bring in. You know that's that's what you're looking for. I, I think that's where they are. All right. <laughs> um, next question, and I think I'm gonna have to do this a little bit later. Uh, I, I don't want to do this just yet, but the next question, and I'll put a pin in this. I'll just read it for now. Can you please address the expected attrition in the offseason? While some candidates such as Travis J and uh, Demoria Tate seem obvious, I'm interested in your thoughts about how many others in which positions might be affected. Particularly interested in your perception of the offensive line recruits from the past few years and which ones might see meaningful playing time at some point. Whew. So I, I generally try to avoid too much, uh, especially during the season speculation on who's going to move on and who's not. Um, just partly because I don't want to mess with some of the chemistry there. Uh, and guys that aren't playing right now aren't necessarily playing because they're not, they're not going to be ready next year, but because they're just not, they're not prepared for this year. So, yeah, I mean, I do think, and you know, I'm looking at my depth chart right now. I do think you're going to see, you're going to have to see at least, you know, five, six, let's see, seven, eight, probably eight guys that are going to have to move on, you know, just that are early that they, they're, they're not, they're not, um, they're not graduating necessarily, but odds are they're probably not going to play at Florida state. But yeah, the, I think a couple of them might stick anyway. 
So, and then there's bound to be a player or two who is just dissatisfied with playing time or whatever, who is a good player and is in line to get to play, you know, before too long and, and may decide to leave. I mean, Sam McCall talked about that this week and then, you know, pulled out of that. Uh, I think somebody got to him, but you know, he's been really dissatisfied with playing time. He's been really frustrated and, you know, frankly, he doesn't, he, he doesn't deserve to play right now. And, you know, I think at corner, he, he really doesn't fit as well. He needs to be at safety. I think he, he's closer to an Akeem Dent in terms of, uh, of traits. So, you know, what do you do with that? Well, you know, you, you can't just hand guys jobs. You can't hand guys roles when they're not ready and when they're not outplaying the guys in front of them. So, I, I mean, that's inevitably going to lead to some guys leaving as well. So, so we'll see. I, I think I will address this a little bit later. I'll, I'll save this question for a little bit later. I don't want to do this just yet, but I, I can see as I'm looking at the, at the depth chart, you know, a good, maybe not 10 guys, but, you know, six, seven, eight type guys that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, decide to go elsewhere. I do think there's some real talent on the offensive line. I mean, I think Jalen early has looked outstanding in, in his appearances. Uh, Julian Armella has looked very promising. Uh, you know, I think Estes has looked promising when he's been out there. So, you know, there's some guys that, that have some, have some real potential there. Uh, I'm also very pleased about the move of Antavius Woody, uh, to defensive tackle. Uh, I think that really helps shore that up for next year. I think they've identified that they need to have some more, more, uh, top athletes there. And he's one of those guys that I projected as a really good defensive tackle coming out of high school. And I think that also means that they feel like at center, they'll be okay. So those are all good signs. I think, I think that's uh, those are all promising. All right. Final question. And this one was sent to me via direct message on uh, Twitter. Uh, so, and actually this, this final question is brought to you by garage Re- garage makeovers, the, uh, number one garage remodeling company in South Florida. If you want to have the envy of your neighborhood, uh, the garage that's the envy of your neighborhood, give them a holler, let them know you heard about it from the unconquered podcast. All right, here's, here's, it's a pretty long question, or actually, I don't even know if it's a question. I wouldn't categorize this as a question, but I got this message on Twitter, uh, this week, coach. What we all witnessed Saturday night should have exposed to every fan how far we've fallen. We do not have the talent to be competitive, let alone elite. We have a team of me players. They allowed their biggest rival to outmuscle, outwill, and outcompete them. This isn't due to coaches not knowing how to coach. It's because we have players unwilling to learn their position and think they can freelance. We don't have the depth to overcome these players or the injuries which have been the worst we've seen in years. These deficits come from years of poor recruiting, not understand which cycle to load up at certain positions, and star chasing. Just because a player is a four or five star doesn't always mean they fit your system or that they are of high character and hungry. There are things with the coaching staff that has irritated me this season too. Along the way, I've come to realize the problem isn't with X's and O's. It's with the players and the players not wanting to be the best they can. As the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Yes, there are some exceptions, but not enough to make the difference. Go back and rewatch the game. Look to see who's on the field battling to play with pride. I doubt you'll find six between the offense and defense. I expect Mario to hold this recruiting class together and work the portal hard. He is reshaping this team to be a consistent winner, and it will take some time to change the culture and get the dogs that will represent the, uh, the dogs that will represent the you the way we all expect it to be represented. <laughs> oh oh man okay well all i can say to that is don't worry just what three more weeks and you all will be back to where you you know you can be you can be champs again it'll be the off season it'll be miami's season and the U will be right back on top once we get to the off season. And, you know, you can rest assured of that. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, good luck with the, uh, the, the lack of coaching or the, this not being a coaching problem at all. When, you know, last year's Miami team was, uh, was reasonably disciplined, you know, played 
with some physicality on defense and was uh, well coached and uh, and played hard on offense and and were really difficult to defend on offense and all of those things have changed for the worse this year uh, as opposed to getting better uh, you know normally it's not a sign of um, a lack of talent when you're actually pretty good the year before and then new ca- a new coaching staff comes in and then things crater and things get way way worse. I've seen that before that happened at Florida state in 2018 where, you know, Florida state in 2017 had some bad breaks, but was still, you know, top 15 team in, in F plus. And then, you know, in, in 2018 just took a, a, a nosedive and that was because of bad coaching guys. I mean, yeah, there were holes in the roster. There were things that weren't as they should be, but ultimately the Willie Taggart staff, things went, in the wrong direction there. And you could see the team get worse in terms of basic fundamentals, in terms of, uh, you know, X's and O's stuff. You could, all of those things got worse and that was a bad sign. Whereas when Mike Norvell took over, the record really didn't change right away. But those first, that first year and second year, you could see the improvement in a lot of these areas. You could see, more and more techniques getting better, different things like that. And you're like, okay, they're headed in the right direction. Miami sure looks like the former and not the latter, which is pretty bad sign for Miami. We'll see whether that turns out that way. It's a pretty bad sign for Miami, but Hey, it's a Canes thing. The rest of us just wouldn't understand, I guess. But thanks for reaching out. That was, that was really, (laughs) that was really fun. This has been the unconquered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealEstate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach in Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast shop at UnconqueredPodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.